You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at redeemerfortbend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. If you have a Bible, turn with me now to Hebrews chapter 4. This morning we're going to read verses 14, chapter 4, verse 14 through chapter 5, verse 10. Hebrews 4, 14 through 5, 10. If you're able to stand, please do so. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may, find, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This is God's word. Please be seated. God, give us open ears and open hearts that we may sit under your word, that it may test us, that it may show us where there is an unclean way in us. Lord, we pray this morning that your spirit would be in our midst, that those who do not know you would be drawn to salvation. And that those of us who do know you would be greatly encouraged by the wonderful truths of this passage. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. You have the right to an attorney. If you cannot afford an attorney, one will be appointed for you. You've probably heard these words before. They are the Miranda warnings, which American police read to someone when they arrest him, which summarize the rights of the accused under our Constitution. 
Not every country has such protections. In China, most criminal defendants do not have a lawyer, which is why 99% of criminal trials in China end with conviction, because accused people have no help in the face of their unjust system. In America, every criminal defendant has the right to an attorney, but not every lawyer is equal in skill or quality. Usually those who can pay more wind up with a better defense than those who cannot pay. But while such inequities persist, at least our system offers accused people some form of help. Well, friends, one day, each of us is going to stand in a courtroom that belongs to a different, higher system. We will stand before the most supreme court in the universe, where God Almighty sits as judge. And unlike the courts of this world, God will render perfectly just judgments. He won't need to call witnesses to testify because he has perfect knowledge of all things. Hebrews 4.13 says, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Nothing will remain hidden. All our secret deeds and motives will be revealed, and then justice will be done. Administered perfectly fairly, with no favoritism. As Abraham asked in Genesis 18, Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the answer is, he will. Deuteronomy 32 says, All his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is He. Friends, in God's court there will be no legal loopholes, no lawyer tricks, no technicalities, no glimmer of hope that you can bamboozle the jury. There will be only the prospect of exacting perfect justice. And if you hear that this morning you think, all those people who have wronged me are going to get it, then friend, you have missed the point. Because this is really bad news for each of us. Because before God, we each stand guilty. Isaiah 53, 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Romans 3, 23 says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all sinned. We each have done what God hates. We have failed to perfectly obey his commands. Now, what's the greatest command? Jesus says in Matthew 22, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Have we done that? Have we always put God first, heeding His word with absolute obedience? Have we always treated others as we would want to be treated? No. Friends, we have done what God has forbidden and we have ignored what God has commanded, and we have used and hurt other people, and we have done these things simply because we wanted to, because there was no fear of God in our hearts. And beyond our outward deeds, inwardly, each of us has relished evil in our hearts at some time, have we not, friends? And Jesus says in Matthew 5, that also makes us guilty. And what is the sentence? That's the most terrible penalty imaginable. James 1.15 says, Sin, 
when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And death there means more than physical death. The ultimate penalty for sin is eternal death, unending condemnation and torment in the fires of hell. That's what we can expect if we die in our sins. Hebrews 10.27 says, All that's left is a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Friends, that is terrible news for us today. God is perfectly just. He is very angry about sin, and He will punish it forever. But while God is just and angry about sin, He is also gracious and kind and merciful. And so even in His perfect justice, He offers humanity help, a way to appease His justice, a way for His righteous demands to be satisfied without us having to bear this awful penalty of sin. And this path of mercy runs not through a legal proceeding, not through representation by a lawyer. No, the help that God offers humanity is representation by a priest, and this morning, as we continue our study in the book of Hebrews, we're going to talk about the truth that God has given us the help we need in the high priesthood of Jesus. And that's what we'll see today in Hebrews, chapter 4, verse 14, through chapter 5, verse 10. Today, we're going to ask three questions. First, what is a priest? Second, how is Jesus our priest? And third, what should we do as a result of the high priesthood of Jesus? And we begin with our first question, what is a priest? Now, when I say priest, you probably think of the fellows at the Roman Catholic Church, right? Wearing ornate, colorful robes and doing ceremonies in big, ornate cathedrals. But while that is the most common way that people think about this word priest today, I want to tell you that is not what I'm talking about this morning. No, the priesthood that we are going to talk about today comes from the religion of the Old Testament, the religion of ancient Israel, which we have called Old Covenant Judaism. And the priesthood of Old Covenant Judaism is described in our passage today, beginning in chapter 5, verse 1. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. The ancient Israelites had the same problem in their day that we have in ours, the problem of sin. Just like us, they were sinners. And God was as holy, just, and angry about sin back then as He is today. Because Hebrews 13.8 says, He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And God's justice has always decreed that the penalty for sin is death. But God graciously gave the Israelites a way of appeasing His anger. So he allowed the Israelites to offer a sacrifice, a substitute that would die in their place for their sins. And God specified in the book of Leviticus what kinds of sacrifices were acceptable. Animals of various kinds, bulls and sheep and goats and birds. And where were these animals to be sacrificed? Well, God told Israel they could sacrifice to him in just one place. Deuteronomy 16.6 6 said, At the place that the Lord your God will choose. 
And for most of Israel's history, or for much of it, God chose a tent called the tabernacle as the place of sacrifice. Later, that tabernacle was replaced by a building in Jerusalem, the temple. But whether you lived during the period of the tabernacle or the temple, either way, when you came to approach God and worship Him in sacrifice, what you would find is that before the door of this place where God was worshipped, there was a massive bronze altar. And what would happen is that the sinner would bring his animal to the altar. And he would confess his sins and place his hands on the animal's head, associating himself with the animal, and then he would kill the animal. And then the priest would take over and ensure that the rules that God had given about sacrifice were observed. And there were a lot of rules. Because in Leviticus, God allowed for many different types of sacrifice to be offered. And each type of sacrifice had different rules about what you did with the animal's blood or how you prepared its body to be burned on the altar. Do you burn it to cinders or do you just cook it and then eat it? What do you do with its organs and so on and so on? So many rules, which the average Israelite could never remember, but which the priests had learned from their youth. And so it was the job of the priest to help the sinner by representing him, by being his agent, properly offering his sacrifice to God on the altar so that God would accept that sacrifice and cover the sinner's sin. So that is the first thing we learn today about the Old Testament priesthood. That priests represented sinners before God by offering the sacrifices required by the Old Testament law. Now we learn a second truth about the priests in Hebrews 5, verse 2. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. As the priest stood at the altar, day after day, hearing sinners confess their sins and offering sacrifices, man, it would be easy for the priest to become filled with pride, self-righteousness, and anger. To look down on those people he was helping and say, How could you be so evil and stupid? Are you here again? Have you done this despicable thing again and again? But man, that is not how God wanted his priests to approach their duties. Instead, they had to maintain the right attitude. An attitude of gentleness towards those they helped. And this gentleness was to be a result of two truths that the priest had to remember. Number one, that he was helping the ignorant and wayward. The sacrifices that the priests offered at the altar did not cover every type of sin. What kinds of sin could be forgiven at the altar? Well, Leviticus 4 allowed a sacrifice for anybody who sinned unintentionally. Now, you might think, well, how can sin be unintentional? Friends, we've got to remember God gave Israel 613 laws. And they did not have their own personal copies of the Bible to carry with them and remember what they were. They had to remember the whole thing in their head. And remembering 613 laws all the time would be impossible. And so sometimes an Israelite would do something, not realizing that it violated God's law. And only later, when he heard the scripture read, would he say, oh, I've sinned. 
And then he was to offer a sacrifice and God would pardon him. Likewise, Leviticus 6 speaks of a sacrifice offered for intentional sin. A sin that the sinner performs and then regrets out of guilt. And if he offered restitution to the people he wronged, then he could offer a sacrifice to cover his sin. But what about sins offered or sins that were committed intentionally, where the sinner had no remorse, where he openly, defiantly wanted to provoke God and there was no repentance? Friend, no sacrifice could cover that. Numbers 15, verse 30 said, The person who does anything with a high hand, that is, defiantly against God, that person shall be cut off from among his people. His iniquity shall be on him. Sins of brazen, intentional defiance could not be forgiven at the altar. Those sins required the severest penalty under the law, this penalty of being cut off of being put to death in a state of alienation from God, dying unforgiven. So not only was this the death penalty, this was the forfeiture of any eternal hope. It was a terrible punishment. But all of this helps us understand why the priest was to view those he helped as being ignorant and wayward. Because the only sins the priest could address by his ministry were sins committed out of ignorance of God's word, sins committed unintentionally, or sins that were committed by someone intentionally but not brazenly, who for a moment of forgetfulness and weakness decided to sin and then came to his senses. This is not the priest helping those who are trying to defy God. This is the priest helping those who are forgetful or just weak. And seeing that, the priest should see there's no need for anger or exasperation. No, the priest was just to be gentle with those people who needed help. Number two, the priest was also to be gentle with the sinner because he himself was a sinner. The priest was not sinless. He was just a man. He was like those people he helped. And so it would be absurd hypocrisy to rage against the sins of others if the priest really understood he was just like those people he represented. His own failings were to keep him humble and gentle. So the priest was to be gentle. This brings us to the third truth about the Old Testament priest. He served in his role because God put him there. Hebrews 5 verse 4 says, And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. The priesthood wasn't a job that you could apply for. It wasn't a job that you could seize. God alone decided who the priests were. Exodus 28 verse 1 says, God told Moses, Bring near to you Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. God chose the family of Aaron to be the priestly family. Occasionally other Israelites were chosen, like Samuel, to also serve as priests. But the rule was God chose the priest. And God chose just one priest at a time to serve as high priest. Now, what was the role of the high priest? Well, we heard about it in Leviticus 16 this morning. The high priest had special duties one day a year at the sanctuary, that is the tabernacle or the temple. One day a year, the high priest would offer a bull as a sacrifice for his own sin. And he would offer a goat as a sacrifice for the sin of all the people. And he would bring the blood of these animals into the innermost room in the sanctuary, the Holy of Holies, 
The room that was forbidden to all people at all other times except to the high priest on this one day. This room is the place where God uniquely manifested his presence on earth. And there, in the presence of God, the high priest would sprinkle the blood of the sacrificed animals to cover the sins of the whole nation. That was the job of the high priest, to represent all of God's people in sacrifice on this one day directly before God. And this office also was filled only by God's choice. So God chose Aaron to be the first high priest. And then in Numbers 20, God chose Aaron's successor, and God kept choosing the high priest down through the ages. Now these opening verses of chapter 5 tell us about the priesthood of ancient Israel and the office of the high priest. That these roles were about representing sinners through sacrifice, that their duties had to be discharged with gentleness, and these offices were held only by those men whom God appointed. What should we take from this? Please understand that the application here does not point to your local church leaders. We are not your priests. We do not stand between you and God in a representative or mediatorial way. We do not have an inside track over you in terms of closeness with God. We cannot mediate your forgiveness by hearing the confession of your sins. We cannot sacrifice for you. We do not inherit our office by being descended from the right family or by a direct revelation from God. The only parallel between the Old Testament priesthood and the local church leaders today is found in Galatians 6, verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. As your elders shepherd this flock, which God has entrusted to our care, we are to maintain this attitude of gentleness and humility when we address sin in the congregation. Because we're sinners just like you are, subject to the same weaknesses that you are. And if we become arrogant and self-righteous when addressing sin, we will ourselves fall into temptation. That's what the Bible says. And so this spirit of offering gentle assistance to sinners should characterize church leaders. In fact, it should characterize all of us who are spiritual, Galatians says. All of us who have the Holy Spirit. All believers. We saw in Hebrews 3, friends, that we are all to be involved in each other's lives. Exhorting each other against the deceitfulness of sin. Encouraging each other on to the finish line that we would persevere in the faith to the end. And friends, as we do this, we are to be marked by gentleness. Now to be clear, gentleness does not mean that we should ignore or minimize sin. It certainly doesn't mean we should say, hey, everyone's a sinner. Go ahead and indulge. No, no, no. We have seen God views sin as a deadly, serious issue. And defiant, brazen sin is supremely offensive to God. And so gentleness is not just passing over sin in silence. No, gentleness means that we love one another and we desire each other's good. So we address sin where we see it, but we don't do this in a way that crushes the wounded or that puffs us up in self-righteousness. The point of correction is loving restoration, helping all of us be where we need to be before God. And friends, we must have this same kind of gentleness that's described in Hebrews 5. For the good of those we help and for our own protection against temptation. 
But beyond that, the truths about the Old Testament priesthood do not point to local church leaders because the era of the Old Testament priesthood has ended. Hebrews 8.13 says that God has made the Old Covenant obsolete. We'll see in Hebrews 7 that there is now a better priesthood than that Old Testament priesthood. The Old Testament priesthood has been replaced. And we are to look to this better priesthood for our application. And that better priesthood is vested in Jesus. And that's what we see now in our second point. Jesus is our priest. Now here it's helpful for us to remember what this book is about. Our author is writing to a church of professing Christians. But in that church, many people seem to be drifting away from the faith. They weren't interested in being distinctly Christian anymore. Instead, they just wanted to blend into the Judaism of their day. And our author is writing to these folks saying, don't leave the faith. Don't trade Jesus for Judaism because Jesus is better than everything in Judaism. So far in, in Hebrews, our author has shown us that Jesus is better than the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament. And Jesus is better than the angels who gave the Old Testament law to Israel. And Jesus is better than Israel's greatest leaders, Moses and Joshua. And now our author comes to his biggest point, the point that dominates the next five chapters of this book. Jesus is better than the priesthood of Judaism. And to prove this, our author now takes those three truths we just looked at about the old priesthood and shows that in each of these areas... Jesus fulfills and exceeds what was true about the Old Testament priest. So what did our author say about the old priest? He said they were chosen by God, right? Well, look at Hebrews 5.5. What does he now say about Jesus? So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Just as the ancient Israelites could not apply for or seize the priesthood, neither did Jesus. Because God chooses his priests and the Father appointed Jesus. Now to prove that the Father appointed Jesus as our high priest, our author quotes from two passages of the Old Testament here, which are prophecies that speak about the Messiah. And first he quotes Psalm 2. Now, Psalm 2 begins by describing the evil of this world. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Our world and its elites have always desired to be free from God and His constraints. They long to engage in unrestrained evil. And so they rebel against God. But God is not intimidated by this rebellion. Verse 4 of Psalm 2 says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. 
God's answer to the evil of this world is that he installs a king. Now in Old Testament times, God installed kings over Israel. And on the day they were crowned, God said he would treat them as his son. And God would give those kings victory over God's enemies. God installed kings to vanquish evil. But Psalm 2 isn't primarily about the ancient kings of Israel. It prophetically anticipates one final king, Jesus, who is God's son, not just because he wears a crown. No, Jesus is God's son because he fully shares the divine nature with the Father. Hebrews 1.3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And Jesus, the Messiah, the divine king, will one day utterly smash all human rebellion and end all evil and reign in unending righteousness. That's Psalm 2. But what's interesting is that Psalm 2 speaks of Jesus not as a priest, but as a king. So why does our author quote Psalm 2 as evidence that Jesus has been appointed by God as our priest? We get the answer in the next passage quoted, Psalm 110. This is another prophecy about the Messiah, in which God says to the Messiah, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This passage says that God the Father invited Jesus to sit at his side, at his, as his equal, to sit at his right hand. That is a phrase we find throughout the Bible that speaks of God's power. So the idea is that Jesus now sits as God's equal, mediating all of God's rule and power to this earth. That's what Psalm 110 is about. And in Psalm 110, verse 4, we read the words quoted in our passage. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And we're going to talk about that verse a lot more in a few weeks. But for now, let me say this. Melchizedek is a figure found in Genesis 14. And he is introduced as king of Salem and a priest of God Most High. So Melchizedek was a king and a priest. Now, the the priesthood of Old Covenant Judaism, the priesthood we've talked about this morning, was instituted by God centuries after Melchizedek. And when God started the priesthood of of Old Covenant Judaism, the priesthood of Aaron, he did not allow priests to rule as kings. Priests were descendants of Aaron from the tribe of Levi, and kings were descendants of David from the tribe of Judah. So nobody could hold both the priestly and kingly office. But Jesus is both king and priest, because Jesus is the Messiah. And Psalm 110 tells us the Messiah has been appointed by God as a priest. Not a priest like Aaron. Not a priest within the priesthood of Old Covenant Judaism. (coughs) No. Jesus is a better type of priest. He is a priestly king. He is like Melchizedek. So as Messiah, Jesus is this superior form of priest. And where does Jesus, our better priest, serve? Well, look at Hebrews 4.14. It says, We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. 
The old priests served at the sanctuary, the tabernacle, or the temple, the place where God's glory dwelt on earth. But where does Jesus serve? In heaven. Hebrews 9 says, When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places. What this says is Jesus didn't just serve at the tabernacle or the temple on earth. No, that the earthly sanctuary was just a symbol, a reflection of something greater, a greater reality in heaven. The earthly sanctuary reflected the temple of God above, the place where God supremely dwells. And Jesus has gone as our priest into that heavenly temple. And Jesus has gone into the supreme holy of holies above. He has gone into the very throne room of God. And friends, He is not there one day a year. No, as Messiah, as this priest after the order of Melchizedek, He is perpetually seated at the right hand of the Father, ministering on our behalf as our priest. Friends, that is vastly better than anything connected to the Old Testament priesthood. That is the appointment that the Father has given the Son. But what else was true about the Old Testament priests? Not just that they were chosen by God, but they had to have the right attitude. Remember, the Old Testament priest had to be gentle because the people he helped were ignorant and wayward and because he himself was a sinner. Well, what attitude does Jesus have about his high priestly service? Look at Hebrews 4.14. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Jesus' attitude towards us is not merely gentleness. Now, he is certainly gentle. But more than that, Jesus sympathizes with us. Because even though he is truly God, he has taken on true humanity. And Hebrews 2.17 says he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus understands what it is to be human. He understands the hardships of this life. He understands the frailty of the human condition and our weaknesses and our susceptibilities because he suffered temptation. Hebrews 4 says, in every respect, he has been tempted as we are. Now, when we think about the temptations of Jesus in the Bible, it may seem like his experience with temptation is totally unlike ours. You know, Satan tempted Jesus to misuse his divine power and turn rocks into bread. I haven't faced that one. Satan offered to give Jesus all the kingdoms of the world if he would worship him. You probably haven't faced that one either. We don't face those temptations. And so we might think, well, Jesus' experience with temptation is disconnected from our experience. But no, friends. Jesus was authentically human in every respect. He didn't just face temptations related to his deity and divine mission. He faced the everyday sorts of temptations that you and I face too. And yet, unlike us, and unlike those priests of old, Jesus conquered those temptations every time, perfectly. 
Jesus never yielded to sin in thought or deed. Now you might say, well, then Jesus can't relate to me because I'm a sinner. But on the contrary, friends, Jesus' sinlessness is the basis for his sympathy with us. One commentator puts this really well. He says, Sympathy with the sinner in his trial does not, exp- does not depend on the experience of sin, but on the experience of the strength of the temptation to sin, which only the sinless can know in its full intensity. He who falls yields before the last strain. Now what that means is that when we face temptation, the temptation usually intensifies the longer that we face it. And if we don't flee, eventually it overpowers us and we give in. But when Jesus faced temptation, he never gave in. And so it just kept intensifying against him. Jesus faced temptation's most powerful enticements, and he never yielded for a moment. That should put us in awe of him. But it also makes him sympathetic to us because he has seen the fullest power of our enemy sin. He understands the totality and depth of what we are up against in a way that we cannot. And yet despite that, he perfectly prevailed. What's more, not only did Jesus face temptation, but this Greek word translated temptation can also mean testing. Jesus faced the most profound hardships and tests. And again, he did not falter or sin. Look at Hebrews 5, verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Now, Jesus' life was not easy. There's a reason Isaiah 53 calls him the man of sorrows. Jesus was persecuted throughout his ministry. He was betrayed by one of his best friends. He was deserted by the rest of them. And what was his mission? To face the most humiliating and painful death imaginable. Death on a cross. To bear the penalty for our sin in his own body. The boundless wrath of the Father. Throughout his life, Jesus would have many reasons to cry out to God with loud cries and tears. And we see this most clearly at Gethsemane. Hours before Jesus went to the cross, he asked his friends to pray for him, and what happened? They fell asleep. And he brought his situation to the Father. And three times, Matthew 26 says, he prayed, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus was stressed by the awfulness of what stood before him. And he asked, was this truly necessary? Is there really no other way? And Luke 22 says, being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Jesus' travail was such that the beads of his sweat became large and dense like blood drops as he wrestled in prayer. And yet through all of that, what was his ultimate petition? that the Father's will should be done. Even in this supreme hardship, even in this extreme temptation, Jesus did not call legions of angels to rescue him from the cross. No, he obeyed the Father. Friends, Jesus understands stress 
anguish, temptation, and trial in ways that you and I can never know. And so Jesus is immensely sympathetic to the hardship and weakness of our frail condition. So his attitude far exceeds that of the old priest, who was simply gentle. Jesus has an authentic understanding of what we endure and a sympathy for you and me. And that Greek word that's translated sympathy, it speaks of the kind of emotion and love that you have for those who hurt in your family. Jesus has a love, a compassion, and a desire to earnestly help his people, believers, those whom he has brought into God's family. For Hebrews 2 tells us if we belong to Jesus, he is not ashamed to call us his brothers. And yet, well, Jesus has a greater depth of love for us as his brothers than the old priests had for those they helped. Jesus is also better than the old priests because those old priests were themselves sinners and had to sacrifice for their own sins. But Jesus is perfectly without sin. So again, Jesus is vastly better. But this brings us to the last characteristic of the ancient priest. They represented people before God by offering the sacrifices of the law. And in this also, Jesus is better. Hebrews 5.8 says, Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. They might think, well, what does it mean he learned obedience? The idea is not that Jesus was disobedient. On the contrary, we just read that even though he faced the full gamut of temptation, he was utterly without sin. Now, this is the idea. Hebrews 2 said he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become our high priest. Jesus was qualified to be our high priest by his human experience. So he had to taste suffering. And instead of running from suffering, instead of using his divine power to cheat it, he had to endure it. He had to perfectly obey the Father's plan. And so he suffered throughout his life. And he suffered in his death. And friends, that is why he came into this world. And Jesus says in Mark 10, 45, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Jesus came to die. Not merely to be our priest who offered an animal sacrifice for us. No, Jesus came to be the ultimate sacrifice for our sin. Hebrews 9.26 says, He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. And Paul explains in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that for our sake, God made Him who knew no sin to be sin so that in Him we might be made the righteousness of God. That's what Luther called the great exchange. Jesus gives believers his own position of perfect righteousness and obedience before God, and he takes our sin upon himself in such a way that it can say he was made sin. And he bore that penalty for all of that sin. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Jesus was cursed for you and me, believing friends. And in all this, he perfectly obeyed the Father. And so he was qualified to be our priest. Now, wait a minute, you might say. Didn't verse 7 tell us that Jesus prayed to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence? 
If Jesus prayed to be delivered from death and was heard, then why did he die? Because Jesus' deliverance from death is not like the way we usually think about being delivered from hardship. When we face hardship, our goal is usually to escape, to avoid pain. But Jesus faced hardship, and he said to God, Not my will, but yours be done. He wanted the Father's will accomplished, and that meant the cross. Yes, Jesus prayed, if the cup of suffering could pass from him, let it be so. But his prayer seeking deliverance from death was bigger than just asking for the cup to pass, ultimately in choosing to submit to the will of the Father. Jesus was praying that God would deliver him not from death, not that he might avoid death. Jesus was praying that God might deliver him through death. He was trusting that in the end, the Father was not going to leave him in the grave as a defeated dead man but that he would rise triumphant over death and sin and the grave and Satan. And friends, that is what happened. The Father delivered Jesus, not by allowing him to escape death, but by delivering him from the power of death by raising him from the dead. And friends, there's a lesson in this for us when we encounter hardship. Yes, we should pray the hardship would be taken away. Yes, we should seek ways to overcome health or financial crisis as the Lord allows. But sometimes God's plan is that we're not going to see total deliverance until the resurrection. Sometimes our hardships will be lifelong. And in those cases, we must simply trust the Lord that though we may not see deliverance in this life, He will faithfully deliver us from every sorrow in the resurrection. That was Jesus' mindset. Hebrews 12, 2 says, Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So Jesus obeyed the Father, he died, and the Father raised him from the dead. And now he is enthroned as our priest king. And that's where today's passage ends. Look at chapter 5, verse 9. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, the perfection of verse 9 is not a moral perfection. The idea is not that Jesus lacked moral perfection and had to acquire it somehow, no. The perfection of verse 9 is related to his service as high priest. Because this verb, to perfect, is repeatedly used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to speak of the consecration of priests. And that's what it's doing here as well. And so this is saying Jesus became qualified to be our high priest by his perfect obedience, despite all the temptations and trials that he faced. And as a result, he has become the source of eternal salvation because he has been made a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, because he is our eternal priestly king. And in this, again, Jesus is vastly better than the old priest. Hebrews 10.4 says, It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The sins of the old covenant covered sins grounded in ignorance and weakness. But what we really needed was a thorough transformation. We needed to be made new. We needed an utter cleansing from sin and utter forgiveness. And Hebrews 10.10 says, We are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So friends, we have a vastly superior forgiveness and cleansing. We have a true salvation 
from the power and penalty of sin because of Jesus' death, which is secured by his unending resurrection life and his ongoing ministry for us as our priest. Hebrews 7.25 says, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And so because Jesus lives forever, because he endlessly sits by the Father pleading for us, endlessly pointing to his own sacrifice on our behalf, there is an eternal salvation of forgiveness available. And so, in his appointment, his attitude, and his actions as priest, Jesus is absolutely better than the Old Testament priesthood. But this brings us to our last point, which is what should we do as a result of this? Verse 9 says there is an eternal salvation available because of Jesus' death, resurrection, and priesthood. But who benefits? What does verse 9 say? He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Not everyone obeys Jesus, so not everyone will be saved. Jesus says in John 8, 24, Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Just like those Old Testament folks who committed brazen acts of defiance and died without forgiveness. Friends, everyone who does not come to Jesus for salvation will be eternally condemned. Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We're saved not by good works, not by any other religion, not by being nice. Say, okay, but what does it mean to obey Jesus? What has Jesus told us to do? Mark 1.15, Jesus says, repent and believe the gospel. We must repent. We must see our sin as God sees it, as something awful and wicked leading us to hell. And we have to turn aside from that life by turning to Jesus in faith. Believing Jesus is who he says he is, who this book says he is, God in the flesh. Believing his death is the only sacrifice that can satisfy God's wrath at our sin. Believing that he is risen, ruling, and reigning in heaven. That is the only path of salvation. And friends, repentant faith entails a change of allegiance. It means we don't just live the way we want to anymore. True belief is evidenced by obedience to God's word. And of course, we won't do this perfectly, which is why we need the ongoing priesthood of Jesus. But there's a reason Hebrews 5 speaks of saved people as those who obey Jesus. And why Hebrews 3 speaks of perpetually disobedient people as unbelievers. Because saved people generally obey God's word. So friend, if you have never repentantly believed in Jesus, or if your life shows a pattern of such disobedience that it is testifying against you, Know that you are on a collision course with the wrath of God. And I would implore you today, cast yourself on the mercy of Jesus because of who he is and what he has done. But if you have turned to Jesus, let me give you two final exhortations. First, Hebrews 4.14 says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. The original readers of this book were not holding fast their confession. They were exiting the faith. And our author says, don't do that. Now, there's a tension here, which we've seen throughout this book. Because on one hand, the Bible repeatedly assures us that God secures his people forever. After all, today we have seen that the salvation of Jesus is described as an eternal salvation. And that Jesus' resurrection saves his people to the uttermost. 
And Jesus says in John 10, 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And that's all true, friends. And yet this book has these repeated warnings not to fall away, to hold fast our confession. So friends, if we, if we know Jesus, we must trust that God will secure us. And yet, as chapter 4 says, we must strive to enter God's rest. We must not spiritually coast. We must not become spiritually lazy. We must be diligent not to drift away after other things, whether it's Judaism or some other religion or sin. Friends, we must stay with Jesus. Because if in the end we ultimately reject Jesus in favor of something else, whatever that is, we have no hope. Because true faith perseveres to the end. Hebrews 3.14 says, We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And so abandoning the faith means we were never saved to begin with. And Jesus is the one and only way of salvation. He is the only one who connects us to the Father. 1 Timothy 2 says, There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He is the only way of salvation. And so if we fall away from Jesus, then we have no hope. Because you won't find mercy anywhere else. Because outside of Jesus, all that remains is God's just fury. So let us hold our confession of Jesus firmly. But this brings us now to our last exhortation. Look at Hebrews 4.16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Friends, we need to draw near to God through Jesus. In the Old Testament, the high priest could approach God just one day a year in the Holy of Holies. But now, believing friends, each of us has direct access to the very throne room of God in heaven because Jesus is there on our behalf. And as we draw near to the Father through Jesus, what will we find? Wrath and condemnation? No, if we belong to Jesus, we approach God not as prisoners walking into court, but as children confident in their Father's love. And so we can approach the Father boldly with the confidence that comes from knowing Him and being His. And as we approach Him, what will we find? That His throne is not a bench of condemnation for believers. It is a seat of grace, dispensing His kindness that we can never earn, dispensing His mercy, deliverance from the terrible consequences of our sin, and dispensing help. And friend, we all need help at times, right? Because life is hard. Because like Jesus, at times we all cry out to God with loud tears and cries. Maybe because like Jesus, we face the prospect of death or health problems or there is brokenness in our families or financial hardship or the sorrow of disappointment or bereavement. We cry out because of the bitter pains of life or maybe because of the terrible temptation of sin because we're weak and the flesh keeps calling us to chase everything that looks good and feels good and makes us feel important. Or we hear the lies of the world and think, well, if I just go along with this, I'll get ahead in the end. But if you belong to Jesus, you know you must not because sin leads to death. But man, its pull is just so powerful and we just feel so weak and we are defeated just so often. And so because of the terrible realities of hardship and temptation, sometimes it feels like we're about to fold. Sometimes it feels like we are, be, we are about to be swept away. And in those moments, what must we do? 
We must not be swept away from Jesus. Rather, we must lean into our faith and we must draw near to God through Him. We must cry out as Jesus did to Him who is able to save us. And we must pray. And we are promised here that we will find help in time of need. God will give us the help as we need it, when we need it. And that might mean that He just solves our problem immediately. But maybe His answer will be more like the answer He gave Jesus. Allowing us to continue in hardship for a season. Maybe even for the rest of our lives. Because by enduring, we will be conformed more to the image of His Son. Maybe the temptation we cry out against will be conquered immediately by a divine miracle. Or maybe He will allow us to keep facing it, forcing us to think about how we can defend ourselves against this sin. Or teaching us to flee from it. 1 Corinthians 10 tells us that God is faithful to us. He will never box us into a situation where sin is the only answer. There's always a way of escape to endure. And so, friend, cry out to God when you need help, and He will give you His help. Draw near to God through Jesus, and you will find a faithful Father who always gives us the help we need. And that help may not look like the help we want, but in the end, if we trust Him, If we are willing to pray, not my will, but yours be done, we will be given the answer that we need. And we will be grown in steadfastness. And we will be increasingly conformed to the image of Christ. And we will be readied for our eternal home. And so today, if you don't know Jesus, I pray that you would repentantly turn to him in faith today. And if you do know him, then remain close to him and draw near to him in your time of need because he will prove faithful to us all as our merciful and faithful high priest. And so as Jude writes, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever.